Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience, and today we bring you the second half of our profile on Elgin Baylor. Last week, we shared Baylor's story from growing up in Washington, D.C., through his high school days, his time at Seattle University, and his rookie year with the Minneapolis Lakers. Today, we pick up the story as Elgin Baylor is heading into his second season in the NBA. He was already an all-star and had led the Lakers to the NBA Finals as a rookie, where they lost to the Boston Celtics. His second season, he increased his scoring to 30 points per game and his rebounding to 16.4 per game. He was an unstoppable scoring and rebounding machine. He also set the then NBA record by scoring 64 points in a single game against the Celtics. But before his second season could even start, he decided to do something that you almost never see a professional athlete do today. He decided to enlist in the Army. Boot camp was scheduled for Fort Sam Houston in Texas, and that was scheduled at the same time as Lakers training camp. Since Baylor could not attend training camp in Minneapolis, the Lakers decided to take training camp to Texas. The Army allowed the Lakers to take over an empty barracks. They had full use of the gym in the evenings, so Baylor had to go all day through his grueling military training and then practice all evening with the Lakers teammates. The rest of the soldiers would cram into the gym to watch them practice and scrimmage. For the soldiers, it was getting to watch NBA basketball for free. But three other things happened during Baylor's second season that would impact the Lakers for years to come. The first was the plane crash. The Lakers plane had to conduct an emergency landing in a snow-covered field in Iowa on their way home to Minneapolis after playing a game in St. Louis. Both the pilot and the co-pilot had military experience and were able to keep their composure and land the plane safely. Now who knows what would have happened had lesser pilots been at the controls. The new Lakers owners realized that if the outcome of that landing had been different, they would not have had enough funds to keep the Lakers going. They would have had to go out of business. By the way, I do an entire episode on that story, so go back and check out episode 4 to hear all the details. The second thing that happened during Baylor's second season is that the Minneapolis Lakers and the Philadelphia Warriors decided to play two games against each other in California. They each gave up a home game to complete the arrangement. A new competing league called the ABL was looking to put a couple of teams in California, and the NBA knew about this and decided to send the Lakers and the Warriors out there to check out how the fan response was for a potential expansion out west. During that 1960 season, the most western team in the league geographically was the St. Louis Hawks, and the most southern team geographically was also the St. Louis Hawks. The entire league then was in the northeast quadrant of the United States. Well, anyway, the Lakers and the Warriors played one game in the Cow Palace in Daly City in the San Francisco area, and the other game was at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. Both games were a hit with the fans. They sold far more tickets than what they were selling back in Minneapolis or Philadelphia. 
The Lakers made the decision right there that this was their last season in Minneapolis and they were going to move to LA permanently. The Warriors were also impressed and moved to San Francisco two years later. The third thing that happened during Baylor's second season was that they had a major setback and finished the season with the second worst record in the league. That would give them the second overall pick in the 1960 draft. Cincinnati had an even worse record and everyone knew they were going to take Oscar Robertson. The Big O was the obvious first pick in 1960. So, with the second pick in the 1960 NBA draft, the brand new Los Angeles Lakers selected Jerry West from the University of West Virginia. The matchup of Baylor and West would keep them at or near the top of the standings for over a decade. For Baylor's third season with the Lakers and the first one in LA, he raised his scoring average to 35 points per game and 20 rebounds per game. Those are Wilt Chamberlain type numbers. While Baylor scored at will, the new rookie Jerry West contributed 18 points per game himself. That actually helped take some of the pressure off of Baylor. Defenses could not concentrate solely on Baylor or else West would get loose. They were a perfect pairing of inside and outside scoring. That season, Baylor set the new NBA record for most points in a single game at 71. That record only lasted about a year with Will Chamberlain in the league. The fourth season in the NBA for Elgin Baylor was probably one of the weirdest seasons on record, especially for a star player. Baylor increased his scoring average yet again to over 38 points per game and 19 rebounds per game. Unfortunately for him, it was the same season that Will Chamberlain scored 100 points in a single game and averaged over 50 points per game for the entire season. Baylor's 38 points per game looked pedestrian by comparison, like it was not a big deal. Kobe's best year was 2006 when he averaged 35.4 points per game. Michael Jordan's best year was 1987 when he averaged 37.1 points per game. Baylor's best year was 38 points per game, better than Kobe or Jordan. But he was in the unfortunate circumstance of finishing second because Will Chamberlain was having the most incredible scoring season in NBA history. But here was the weird part of that season. Due to the increased activity by the United States military in Vietnam, Elgin Baylor was called up from the Army Reserves and into full active duty. Now he never left the United States, but he only played in 48 games that season due to his military commitments. He was only available to the Lakers on weekends and then whenever else he could get leave. He would fly to wherever the Lakers were playing and then right back to the base by Monday morning. It was an intense schedule, even by NBA standards, and he still averaged over 38 points per game. I do not even know how to describe that. It required an incredible effort, and he delivered. Now, if you look in the record books to try to find Baylor's 38 points per game during the 1962 season, you will not find it. Due to the fact that his military commitment limited him to only 48 games, he did not play enough games that season to be eligible for any scoring records. And yet, he still led the Lakers back to the NBA Finals to play against the Celtics in 1962. The series went down to overtime of Game 7 before a champion could be determined. For that final series, Elgin Baylor averaged 41 points per game and 18 rebounds per game. Incredible numbers. Here were his totals game by game, starting with Game 1. He had 35 points and 17 rebounds, but the Celtics won. In Game 2, he went for 36 and 12, and the Lakers won. In Game 3, he went for 39 and 23, and the Lakers won again. Game 4 was 38 points and 14 rebounds, but the Celtics won. The series was now tied at two games apiece. 
In Game 5, he set an NBA playoff record with 61 points and 22 rebounds, and that record stood until Michael Jordan scored 63 points against the Celtics in 1986. However, it is still the finals record for most points in a single game, and the Lakers won. In Game 6, he had 34 points and 15 rebounds, and the Celtics won, tying the series at three games apiece. In Game 7, Elgin Baylor produced 41 points and 22 rebounds, but the Celtics won in overtime. The Finals MVP award did not exist at the time or else he would have definitely been a sure lock for it, despite the fact that his team lost. He did everything he could to bring a championship to the Lakers that year. At the end of that season, he went back to the Army Reserves and played in 80 games the following season, averaging 34 points per game and 14 rebounds. But then he began to suffer a series of knee injuries. He still played at an all-star level, but he did lose a step. He was also approaching his 30th birthday, which back then was when most players began to see a serious drop-off in performance. Without modern training and medical techniques, most players saw their legs wear out by around the age of 30. Baylor now had five seasons of NBA basketball under his belt, and this is a good place to take a break, and we'll be right back with the rest of Elgin Baylor's storied career. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold. You know, within reason, garage sales, probably not. So go ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. Welcome back to the show and let us fast forward a little bit to the summer of 1968. Baylor has just finished his 10th season in the NBA and had gone to the finals six times and lost to the Boston Celtics every single time. The Lakers needed to do something to get over the hurdle. So the Lakers brought in Will Chamberlain to go along with Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and try to finally win an NBA championship. To make a long story short, 
They lost to the Celtics again in the spring of 1969. That series also went to the end of Game 7. At this point in his career, Elgin Baylor had been to the NBA Finals seven times and he lost to the Celtics all seven times. With Bill Russell retiring at the end of the 1969 season, it opened the door for the Lakers to finally win a championship. After all, with Baylor, West, and Chamberlain on the team, the Lakers had the number one, number two, and number three scorers in league history at the same time. Chamberlain was already the all-time leading scorer in league history. Baylor was number two, and West was number three. Now remember, not the top three active scorers, but the top three all-time scorers. I do not think that that kind of a situation will ever happen again. To put that into a modern context, it would be like having Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, LeBron James, and Karl Malone on the same team at the same time, because those three players are the current top three scorers in league history. And in 1970, the Lakers were in the finals again, but this time against the New York Knicks, and they lost to the Knicks. The series went all the way to seven games, but still, a loss is a loss. Eight trips to the finals, and eight losses for Baylor. And then things got even worse. The following season in 1971, Baylor played in only two games due to a damaged ACL. He fought back and returned to the Lakers for the 1971-72 season. He did not want to finish his career on an injury. He made a valiant effort to come back, but he was a shadow of his former self, averaging only 12 points and six rebounds per game. Just nine games into the season, he announced his retirement from basketball. He just could not go anymore. The pain was too great in his knee. At the time that he retired, he was the all-time leading scorer in Lakers history and the number two scorer in league history. He was also the all-time leading rebounder in Lakers history. In fact, even as of the year 2022, he is still the all-time leading rebounder in Lakers team history. More than Mikan, more than Kareem, more than Wilt, more than Shaq, more than all of them. Now, here is the irony of all ironies in the Elgin Baylor story. When he decided to retire from the Lakers, the Lakers replaced him in the starting lineup with Jim McMillan, who had previously been Baylor's backup. In the very first game without Elgin Baylor, the Lakers started their famous 33-game winning streak. It is still the longest winning streak in NBA history and the longest winning streak in North American professional team sports history. The Lakers literally started the streak the day that Baylor retired. The Lakers went on to set an NBA record with 69 regular season victories against just 13 losses. They steamrolled their way through the regular season and the playoffs. They just could not be stopped that year. They met the New York Knicks again in the NBA Finals and defeated them four games to one. Jerry West got to celebrate his first championship on his eighth trip to the Finals. Will Chamberlain proved that he still had some left in the tank. The Lakers celebrated their first championship in LA without Elgin Baylor. Now, it is hard to make sense of something like that. The guy gave everything to the Lakers, and then they win the championship as soon as he leaves. Just a couple of years after retiring from the Lakers, Baylor was hired as the new head coach of the New Orleans Jazz, where he got to coach Pistol Pete Maravich. But after four mediocre seasons, he was fired and the team relocated to Utah. After about six more years, he was hired to be the new general manager of the LA Clippers in 1986. It was a position that he held for 22 years. As I mentioned last week in part one of this episode, he only had two winning seasons and more than two decades as the architect of the team. It became a running joke that Elgin Baylor was the king of the NBA draft lottery since he was there 20 out of 22 seasons. In those 22 seasons with the Clippers, he had a record of 607 wins against 1,153 losses. That is a winning percentage of just 35%. 
But here's the reason that he was never fired, and this is what makes his legacy so complicated. The owner, Donald Sterling, wanted to lose. He continually canceled potential trades and free agent signings that might have improved the team. In other words, the owner was handcuffing Baylor. Baylor would have a trade in the works or a free agent signing that would improve the team, and then Sterling just canceled it at the last minute. From a basketball perspective, Sterling's interference made no sense. But from a financial perspective, it made total sense. Sterling needed the team to lose money. Therefore, he needed a losing team. I grew up in Southern California as a Lakers fan, and I clearly remember when you could go to a Clippers game for about half the price or less of going to a Lakers game. The Clippers had a really hard time filling their arena. They had trouble giving tickets away. Meanwhile, tickets to the Lakers were like winning a golden ticket to enter Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. So here is why Donald Sterling needed to lose money with the Clippers. Sterling would write off those financial losses on his tax returns to reduce his overall tax bill. I am not a financial expert, so do not take this as any sort of financial advice, but basically, he would apply his financial losses from the Clippers against his earnings from his real estate company to ensure that he paid hardly anything in corporate taxes. The whole thing is a bit complicated, but essentially, Sterling saved money in the long run by having the Clippers lose. This is the kind of a guy that owned the Clippers for so long. And if you are a Clippers fan, be thankful that he was forced to sell the team to Steve Ballmer. With Ballmer, you have a guy with a ton of money who really wants to win and will spare no expense to put the best team that he can on the court every season. Baylor was fired from his role with the Clippers in 2008 at the age of 74. After a lawsuit against the Clippers over his firing, he settled into retirement from basketball completely. Sadly, we lost Elgin Baylor on March 22, 2021 at the age of 86. He was truly one of the greatest players in league history. No matter which list you look at, he is still in the top 20 players in NBA history on almost everyone's list. I do not think it is an exaggeration when I say this, but today's modern Skywalkers like Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon took aerial acrobatics to a whole new level. But before them, we had Kobe Bryant and Vince Carter. Before them, we had Michael Jordan. Before Michael Jordan, we had Dr. J, Julius Irving. And before Dr. J, we had Elgin Baylor, the original king of hang time. Chick Hearn was the legendary Lakers broadcaster who called nearly every single Lakers game from his first season in LA in 1960-61 up until he passed in 2002. That is 42 years of watching the NBA. Not only the Lakers, but also their opponents. He saw everybody play going back to Bill Russell and Bob Cousy to Kobe and Tracy McGrady. He put it very simply in regard to Baylor, quote, he might be the best player I ever saw, unquote. So how should we remember Elgin Baylor? As I mentioned in part one of this episode, his legacy is complicated. As a player, he was undoubtedly one of the greatest players of all time. But as a coach and general manager, he left a lot to be desired. But as I have shown, when he was a general manager for the Clippers, he worked for an owner that constantly sabotaged his efforts to improve the team. So it is hard to tell how good he really was. The best thing might be to just remember who he was as a player. Unfortunately, we have very little video of him since he played in those days when very few NBA games were on TV. But he was truly one of the greats of all time. That is how he should be remembered. Join us next time when we share the story of the famous Rucker Tournament in New York. It is the most prestigious outdoor basketball tournament in the world. Even NBA players show up to play in it. 
That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman aka the football history dude and i wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the sports history network our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear and if you didn't know it already we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics in fact here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network this is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.